Hello and welcome to the President's Podcast brought to you by Get French Football News, your home of French football in English. In this extraordinary series, we sit down with French football's power brokers to discuss their journeys into the game and the future of the world's most successful export market of footballing talent. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Bob Radcliffe. Bob is the CEO of Ligue 1 club Ogesinis and spearheaded chemical company Ineos's acquisition of the football team, which was completed back in August of 2019. Bob heads up all of Ineos's footballing activities, including the management of Ineos's other football franchise, Swiss outfit Lausanne Sport, which I'm sure we'll talk about too today. Bob, welcome to the President's Podcast. Delighted to have you on uh, today during these challenging times. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Well, Bob, let's jump straight into it. For people who may not be aware so much of, of you and, and Ineos and even Ogesinis and, and kind of what's happened there in the last 18 months, we want to get a sense a little bit of how you came into kind of this situation, so to speak. So what, with that in mind, what was your first footballing memory? Is this a passion plus business project? Is this purely business? Where does it stand? No, I think this is definitely a passion. It's a passion of sort of my brother, of, of his partners, that they've been very successful building Ineos over the last 20 years to make it sort of, you know, one of the most successful global companies and one of the leading private companies in the world. And the dividend is increasingly, or part of the dividend is increasingly investing in sport and even before that if you if you look at Ineos and there's a lot of sports people in Ineos now you know you've got Dave Brails with cycling you've got Ben Ainsley you've got Kipchoge on the running side the first guy that Ineos employed was a 1500 meter Olympian who started doing community projects for us like the Daily Mile which was this idea of the Scottish teacher who saw all these sedentary school children and said, if we could get them to run a mile around the playground every day, they'd be a lot fitter, healthier, and they'd focus a lot more. And we, and we picked that up and supported that. And John did, John Mayer. Yeah. And then that came, you know, then there was go run for fun. And that's where the sporting side really started at Ineos was on the community side. Absolutely. And what about you personally? You and football, did, was there a player you looked up to when you were younger? Did you ever dream as a kid of, you know, maybe making it onto the pitch or not? No, I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. I was born in Man Manchester. Actually, three miles from the Etihad was where I was born. So yeah. I do have quite good footballing roots. But my first memories, because you asked me this sort of question beforehand, was when we, I, we moved to Hull. Not many people put that on their CV that they lived in Hull. <laughs> at the age of seven. And my first, my first footballing memories are actually going to Hull City. You know, when you go to, I think one of the definitions of football is when you go on your own, not with parents. And mm. we used to, I used to go with mates to Hull City. And you know, there was Ken Wagstaff, Clark, Claude Butler, they were a second division team. Yeah. There was a great atmosphere about it. And uh, that was quite formative. It's when my brother had his first, um, his first job, he used to sell golden goal tickets. You're probably not old enough, Christian, to remember those sort of pieces of folded up paper, crimped <laughs> at the edges that had a time on them and you won a prize. So that's what he sold. So that was his first commercial endeavor. 
So anyway, so so that's where my sort of football journey started. And then I moved back to Manchester and then I moved to New York in 79 when American football was first taking off, you know, soccer in, in terms of the cosmos. So I saw the cosmos yeah. quite a few times at the Meadowlands. And then I went back to the US in 92 and saw the World Cup there. I remember the Italy the Italy Ireland game, where everybody expected sort of, you know, everybody thinks about New York being quite an Italian city, but it was full of Irish people. It was a very good atmosphere. Um, and I just, you know, because I spent 40 years in banking, really, financial services. So I spent a lot of time in the US, UK. And that's why I can sort of justify being my sort of team is Chelsea because I've lived in London more than anywhere else. So um, I'm a season ticket holder of Chelsea, although I don't go very often these days. Mm. Um, that's, that's really interesting. That some, some couple of things that I want to pick on a little bit. Um, so would you say that the kind of cultural aspect of football is something that's, that's always often drawn you to it? You mentioned Italy Ireland as one of those kind of big memories. Is there something to that? Is that that sort of power that football can bring, um, bring one people together and then also the kind of cultural nuances of it as well? Is that something that's, that's been a kind of interesting facet for you looking at football? Yeah, and it, it came significantly into play when we, when we decided, you know, we had Lausanne. We learned some lessons around Lausanne. Yeah. And then we said it's got limitations. Because one of the things that we sort of learned quite quickly is what is the context of the football? What is its potential? And then we started, you know, we looked at some, we looked at Spain, we obviously looked at UK, which is sort of quite a well-trammeled story for us. And then we looked at France. And one of the key things was, does it have real fans? You know, if a, if a football team doesn't have real fans, or history or heritage. It just doesn't feel right. Yeah. And you know, I do go to Chelsea, the one that, the one place, the one which is increasingly corporate. I mean, the best thing is my seats for a long time were by the away end, because you know, away supporters sort of carry the game to my mind. They're the real supporters, the guys who travel. Sure. And get sort of crammed into corners. Chelsea's got quite corporate. And I think that there is an element of that across across the Premiership now, particularly with the London clubs. I For sure, you have, to go, you have to go to Germany, don't you, to get you know that huge. You have to go back to the big industrial heartlands like Dortmund, Schalke, mm. to get that huge atmosphere. But we did like that about Nice, that there was a real you know fan contingent. And even before we bought it, I met the fans group. I was quite interested to do that and wanted yeah. to see whether they wanted us as owner. So that was quite an important part of our assessment to acquire OGC Nice. You mean, when you said that, you mean the, the Populaire Sud? Yeah. 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 I, I think that's certainly, certainly true and specifically true for OGC Nice in that what's interesting about the core support of a lot of these Ligue 1 clubs is that you do sometimes have competing ultra factions, even within the context of the same club, depending on the kind of stand. What's quite unique about Nice and Ligue 1 at the moment is that the Popular Sud is fundamentally the group. Um, and, and actually what that enables is a lot of 
fan unity really so long as you know the, the popular suit are, are happy and and that's not always been the case in the last five years but i'm sure you're hoping it certainly will be for the next five you mentioned away fans pushing matches that's certainly become more and more true in an increasingly kind of in, in i guess commercialized football world that we live in to that end what are your thoughts on kind of the pre-COVID-19 situation that Ligue 1 was facing over the last sort of six, seven, eight months where for the vast majority of matches away fans were banned under the premise that, frankly, the French authorities didn't have enough police and, and, and members of local authorities to contain and, and deal with these fans? Um, I know there was, a, there was a very kind of newsworthy example early on in this season where, where Nice fans were literally not allowed to leave uh, Alp-Maritime, the kind of, I guess, the UK sure. county. Um, what's your take on that? And, and is that something that you feel, you know, is going to change um, in the near future? I know it's obviously been linked quite closely with the, with the Gilets Jaunes movement, but fans will say, well, you know, why don't you just let 100, 200, where's the harm in that? Well, I, I do think... I do think it is important that you have a, an away contingent. It adds to the atmosphere of the home supporters as well. But at the same time, you know, we're acutely sensitive. Everybody should be comfortable at a stadium, including families. Yeah. That, that, that's very important. So you have to find the balance. And behaviour is an issue. I mean, Switzerland is an amazingly, you, you, you'll know, an amazingly immaculate and well-ordered country. But it does have a problem with away supporters. Yeah. It really is a problem, which surprised me. And, and, and to be honest, when it comes to Lausanne, and we had a pitch invasion, I was at that game and you see sort of parents with children being quite disturbed about it. And, and I fully understand that. We have no tolerance for that. We just don't want those people back in the ground. So... You want the atmosphere, but there has to be a sense of responsibility with it as well. And we can all have fun, but you don't have to take it to extremes. I think, I think it's, you know, people just have to be grown up and sensible about it. Are and is the kind of French tradition of, or French war tradition of somewhat inventive banners part of that fun? No, I think the world's changing and, and, and nobody, you know, none of us can stand still. We have to be sensitive to the way society is changing. You can't, you can't put that flag in the ground. So I don't think that is an appropriate excuse anymore. And you, and you get it, you get it in, in London, you get it in Chelsea. There were chants at Chelsea for years and I would never have liked my son to ask me what that chant meant. Yeah. You know, you just don't want it. Um, and it's not necessary. Sure. Um, it, it, and I hear some of the chants about Alonso, you know, in, in the Premiership. And I just think they're absolutely, and I never see that picked up, but I think they're absolutely appalling. Mm. So, you know, some level of sort of mockery and sort of joking, I, I can live with. You know, Gerard slipping and, you know, a bit of a song about it. I don't have, frankly, I don't have a problem with that. That's sort of one fan versus, versus another fan. But when it gets personal at any level, I think it's totally inappropriate. And it's, it's, it's not part of football. It's not part of sport. Mm. You are, yeah. at, at the same time, we're not going to church. You know, people have to relax and enjoy it. 
Yeah. For those of you who aren't aware, Bob uh, referring to Marcus Alonso and enchanting relating to a accident that the Spanish international had uh, somewhat earlier on in his career there. But we'll move on. You mentioned Lausanne. Obviously, that's the first foray for Ineos in the footballing world coming in, in 2017. You've been yeah. formally president there since March 2019. You said you learned some lessons there before diving into this Ogesinis adventure. I know you've touched on them somewhat in, in your press conference back in 2019, but I guess maybe somewhat with hindsight now and, and really having had nine, nine or so months of Liga experience, Talk, talk us through, you know, two or three of those sort of concrete lessons that, that you feel you've, you've taken from Switzerland and at least look to, whether it's short-term or medium-long-term, enact over at Auger Sinis. I think what we did at Lausanne, we, we, we were fans first. And because of that, mid-season, we finished up overplaying for players unsettling a dressing room and overcompensating players. So, so as a very honest assessment from a, from a president, I, re- I think everyone's going to really appreciate that. <laughs> but, but in fairness, I think so many successful business people have gone into football and they've lost all sense of everything that yeah. put them in a position to acquire the football play- club in the first place. Fortunately, I think we realised that sort of, pretty quickly and the sums involved were not were not earth-shattering sums so it was a very valuable lesson for us and then we said to ourselves well what is what is this league capable of what can we achieve here and if you look at Switzerland it's fantastic in terms of its academy but it's a pass-through league in many ways it's a pass-through league I know you know, Basel and young boys do really well in European competition, but they're bigger than Lausanne. So, and there is a rationale for how they achieve that. But it's, you know, there's no national players who play in the Swiss League. And we said to ourselves, well, actually, we go and watch Chelsea. You know, the family's sort of watching watches Manchester United, the Premiership, you want to see some quite special football. Mm. And where do you find that? And I think that increasingly, Christian, is where the world is going. Is And if I look at my son who's 13 and he's mates, the first thing they do at the morning is, is look at YouTube and look at the goals, but they're not looking at the goals. They're not looking at the goals in second divisions. They're looking at the goals by the stars who have done something special, something magical. And so that sort of led us to think about how could we get involved in football at that level? And what we had learned is whatever you do in football, whatever you you have to treat it like a business. And the, the ethos of Ineos in many ways is find value in a business you want to acquire and then improve it operationally and look for operational excellence. And we brought ourselves back to that, and that's what we're focusing on in Lausanne. Lausanne's still a great opportunity, a brand new stadium going up with 15 points clear in the second division. So it was all going swimmingly until COVID came along. So we do think it's an important part of what we want to do in football. And it's a real development place for young players as well, who can really start to show their mettle. Because we come back to, you know, our model is going to be 
developing young players and giving them the opportunity to play. And it's great that we have that stepping stone. Mm. That's, yeah, that, that's very interesting. Uh, certainly, uh, just want to pick up on what you said there at the end. Does that mean that we might be seeing some sort of affiliation or closer ties between Lausanne and Lourdes and Nice in the future? I mean, Nice has, actually, I would say in the last four to five years, struggled somewhat in that there's always at least four or five really impressive younger players, 17, 18. They don't just quite get an opportunity in that first team, but it, but it might be something where, somewhere where they could play an important role at Lausanne, whether Lausanne yeah. is the first division or the second division next season. Yeah, when we put the board up, we need to put 50 players on that board, 25 for, for, for each team, mm. and see how the two can work together. Because I agree with you. It is, you know, we changed the academy director in Nice. That was one of the first things we did when we, we came back, because we want the very best academy. But at the same time, you want somewhere where they can play men's football. Because there is some statistic, I can't, I try and Google it, but it's a very believable one, even if it's apocryphal, which is, you know, if, if boys don't play men's football between the age of 17 and 19, they're not going to make it through to Champions League level football. So you need to provide that opportunity. And it is something we will look at, is potentially looking at another club as well that could provide pathway for yeah. players. Because that's quite important to us. I thought it was quite interesting, you know, Manchester City have just bought that second division Belgian club, haven't they? Yeah, and they, they are, well, I mean, they have a deal in principle to buy Nancy and Ligue 2 as well. They've put the brakes on yeah. that somewhat during COVID-19. But I mean, yeah, I mean, Manchester, I was going to go on to that. The City Football Group have now got, or if the Nancy deal goes through, they'll have 11 or 12 clubs worldwide owning either a majority or minority uh, stake in it. It's, it's funny, though, because at the end of the day, the, this has been a, maybe a four or five year project you've had with the City Football Group now, but you can't name a single individual who has come through from one of those clubs and made an impact in the Premier League. So with that in mind, the kind of having multiple sort of clubs that have affiliations to each other is a model that is certainly working to an extent. You see Lille are doing that right now, although without firm, formally owning Portuguese side Vitoria. Yeah. What sort of, you're saying maybe a third club, maybe looking for another pathway. Are we looking for that pathway on top of Ojesenis? Is it in between Lausanne and Ojasinis? Is it below Lausanne? Oh, I think that's I think that's a that's a development pathway so that we can bring yeah. players through players through to Nice. But as far as we're concerned, Nice is at the top of the pyramid. That's uh, that's certainly going to be reassuring for for Les Eglons fans to hear. Have you guys put in any thought in terms of where uh, geographically you'd be looking for that club? No, I think we think we think that's sort of European. And what one of the things that we've done in this sort of difficult period, we spent quite a bit of time with, and I went out there at the beginning of the year to Abidjan on the Ivory Coast, yeah, to sort of firm up our relationship with Racing Club Abidjan, so mm -hmm. we can bring players from there as well. So we think that's quite interesting, because to be honest, if we're going to compete for the top five, tops in that top five, top six group in France, which clearly we do, we need a model that works and is sustainable for us. And one of the things that we will need to do is develop players. We do not have, you know, PSG, we can park for the moment because it's just at a different level, but we don't have the level of support of Marseille. We're not of the size of Lyon. 
Mm. We don't have special attributes like Monaco. So we have to develop a model that will work for us. And that is part of the process and part of the building blocks. I mean, one of the things, you know, you know, with the fans, so the first thing I said with the fans is, you know, we had this fan group meeting, which was amazingly well supported with no football. It was just myself, Christiana Rossi and Jean-Pierre. And, and, and my plea to the fans was, I hope you like this in three years time, because we're, we, we want to build something here and you have to have some patience. Patience is the main thing. We can't do it overnight if we're going to put the fundamental foundations in for something that will sustain. And you do have limitations of financial fair play, particularly if you want to play in Europe. You, sure. you know, the days of Jack Walker and Blackburn and throwing your fortune at something and winning something, you just can't do that anymore. And, and I'm not sure, even if we could, it's not what we would want to do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's far more... I think the world of football and even the fans themselves, if, as you say, it occurs and the success really comes in three, four years, will appreciate it far more. And the image that the club will give off will be far better than, as you say, buying your way immediately to the top. Is that strategy also somewhat informed, Bob, by the kind of bad experiences, though, as you were saying in terms of Lausanne, of, of overpaying immediately, bringing in people like Enzo Zidane? Not that he's a bad player. I think he's had dealt with enormous pressure. So yeah, yeah. He's a, he's, a, he's a charming, he's, he's a charming man as well, is Enzo. So yeah, yeah. it is informed by that. And if we, if we look at the success, the, it's relatively modest success, but it doesn't feel like this when you're in Lausanne. And this year with Lausanne, we've, we, we've put together a team there that has got some experience, but at the same time, you've got Dan and Doy, who we transferred in the window, in the January window, to Nice. Yeah. He's a young Swiss player, tremendous player. He's been scoring goals. Andy Zakir is a young player who's been scoring goals. Cameron Poetas. We've put a team together of young players. And it's very satisfying for me when I'm sort of beyond my second year to see the development of these players. Mm. And it certainly is for the local fans. There is yeah. nothing like seeing your own players develop rather than, I think, buying ready-made. I mean, at times you sort of have to do that. And I think if we're going to focus on younger players, which we clearly are, because we're looking for value in the transfer market, at the same time we have to complement that with experience. That's why, you know, somebody like Dante is sort of excellent for us, you know? Yeah. Is that something these fans maybe can expect? A little bit more experience added this summer? Because obviously it was when you came in and you'd had literally six days or so to get everything over the line. But they were all young players, players who'd maybe been either either players in that category, like a Stanley and Soki, who was very much coming out of a youth academy with promise, or someone kind of three, four years older, like the Casper Dolberg, who dealt with this enormous expectation, somewhat tailed off, and now there's an opportunity to kind of rise again. Are we looking at maybe a couple more experienced people? And that's quite something that Patrick Villar has also talked about. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's on our, it's on our pad to, to look what is available and can we do that? Because we do see the benefit of, you know, yeah. role models in the dressing room. Uh, that's very important to us. I, I will say, I, ha I have to say, given how difficult it was to acquire the club, and we had the com competition authority, yeah. and we did get, 
you know, I started spending time at the training centre in August, and we had some level of control over over sales, but but they didn't want to buy any players. So we're trying to buy players, but we don't own the club. It was quite trying, but I have to say, if I look at the four players that we acquired, you know, Dolberg, who you've mentioned, who I think is, you know, I think we were just starting to get in a very good rhythm before Agreed. it all stopped. Agreed. And Casper Dolberg strikes me as somebody with significant potential. I find him a very elegant player. Mm. I think from my, and I am a layman in football, but he wasn't getting enough service, which is something we need to work on. But he is a very elegant player. He's a very professional player. I think Claude Maurice, you know, if you bring somebody who's really good in a second division, it's a bit like people coming to the premiership. It takes a season for them to get acclimatised. I think he was beginning to get acclimatised. Mm. And he's quite an exciting technical player. Uh, I think Budui was was a revelation. Um, I think he's a I think he's a real talent. He's also quite tough. I remember him getting kicked in the head, and he just sort of shook himself off and <laughs> and, and sort of picked himself up. I like that sort of attitude. Yeah. And then we got Stanley and Soki, who you just mentioned, and uh, and you know, there's occasions when he goes on a run, and it's like parting the Red Sea. It's a bit like. Yeah, yeah, Torre. So I think there's a lot of potential. In, I think there's a lot of potential in Stanley there. So I think that's quite exciting. What I sort of worry about, to be honest, is you know we're not a one-hit wonder. I think we did remarkably well in that very short window, and I think the expectation is because we had so little time. Our next window, we're just going to be amazing, and I think we just need to dampen that down a bit, and we need yeah. some windows. Nobody's a ch- Nobody has built a good team with just two windows. So I think I, I come back to that patience point, Christian. Mm. I mean, the, the club obviously made a conscious decision not to outlay serious expenditure in January. We had two notable loan signings come in, Riza Domizi and obviously uh, yeah. Musa Wagwe from Barcelona. Also, uh, perhaps a surprising decision uh, for fans came last week with the announcement that all of, of Domizi, uh, Wagwe and, and also uh, Adam Unas, who did come in on loan in summer uh, with, a, with a quite considerable option to buy clause attached to that. All of them not going to continue the Ojesinis adventure. With you coming into the club now, have you sort of kept intact the previous recruitment process that was being seen by Ojesinis before Shenley basically uh, had a situation, the former owner whereby both Jean-Pierre Rivera and Julien Fournier left, in that you know, Fournier is doing a lot of the work from you know, very, very early on, one, known as one of the most diligent and hardworking sporting directors to get stuff done, even, you know, absolute months in advance from at least a scouting perspective, identification of target perspective for a summer window. And then Jean-Pierre yeah. Ritter also uh, handling kind of media expectation there and, and, and also playing a, an important role in the negotiations. Um, so, so was this a sort of strategy that that is still very much brought upon by by them and 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 you play a a supporting role or or are you kind of more uh, as equals as a three when it comes to purely sort of first team player related matters i think when we're talking about transfer targets we we sort of well we more than triangulate because the person you didn't mention there is patrick sure and it's very important that anybody we bring in 
he's very supportive of and he has it you know he's a he's a very smart guy with a lot of presence as you know and he has his own views and it's important that we hear those views so i think you know it's really the four of us that look at those names uh i mean at the end of the day a lot of the homework is do, done with julian and his scouting team and the database and we like that we think that is key yeah. Serge Ricordier as well, an incredibly important talent now back with Ojasinis. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and, and to be honest, we look at sort of Ineos DNA, which is finding value. We think, you know, Julian was probably born with that, which is, which is exactly <laughs> what... printed on his forehead, yeah, literally. <laughs> no, but it's exactly what we need. Because yeah. one of the issues we've got when, you you know, you have this sort of, you arrive with these are extremely wealthy people, is people think you're going to achieve it through checkbook. And that's not what we want. We want to be known for people who are very thoughtful about who they acquire, what they acquire. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you see with Julian, he lines up a number of players, and that is important to us because if we look at acquisitions, and I spent my life in sort of financial services doing a lot of acquisitions, if you look at Ineos, it does a lot of acquisitions. Mm. It is, the, the talent in many ways is the preparedness to walk away from a deal. Yeah. If you want to secure value. And that's quite important to us because we will invest in these, but you be through financial fair play, you're necessarily limited to what you can invest. So you have to make the absolute most of that investment. So we will carefully do acquisitions, but alongside that, we need the best academy. We need the best scouting. We sure. need pathways from other pieces that we have either a partnership or an, uh, an ownership in. Mm. And it's all those things knotty together that hopefully will bring us consistent European football that's what that's what our plan is uh Christian and ultimately it was it was decided that of those those three loan uh talents that arrived this season that they weren't going to be part of that or you know was that an Ojasini's decision or or was it you know from from more from their side as well uh, I, th I think to be honest we made that we made that decision that you know they they we're doing a we're doing a squad rebuild and and we will look at other options. Mm. Okay, well let's let's move on a little bit to you mentioned the difficulties you got you guys had in getting this deal done. Yeah. Give us a, a very rough timeline in in kind of the first place. Had this been going on for as long as kind of press reporting suggests it had, which I guess all said and done was a sort of an 11, 12 month affair if you go from September 18, August 19. Well, if you look at it, I first got involved in football with Ineos because I spent my life in, in banking. I didn't spend my life in petrochemicals. So I was taking a year off because I was paid for a year by my prior company. So I was quite enjoying life with my brother said, <laughs> come to me to the Lausanne training camp in Spain. So I went there and then I was persuaded, you know, why don't you run a football club, which sounded quite interesting. So that's when I first commerced in Lausanne, right? A year later, interesting, same place in Jerez, and I've got 
my brother Jim there and his two partners, John and Andy, and we had a conversation about what do we want to do with football and there are limitations in terms of our ambitions with Lausanne. Why don't we look at other opportunities? Oh, and by the way, we've had a conversation about Nice and I'd done some homework on Nice being much bigger than I thought, having the biggest, second biggest airport in France, being in a lovely Mediterranean location, mm. it tying up with where Jim, John and Andy spend a lot of time in the summer, etc. And then from that, I sent, I think I sent a text to Jean-Pierre and finished up meeting them in Sloan Square. And I looked at my calendar because I thought you might ask me this question on February the 4th. So we first met on the Wow, February. okay. Fair enough. Okay. And then it, it quickly sort of accelerated. And I met Chen Li on the 28th of February. Mm. And the next day, I had a tour of the training centre and the stadium. And then, to be I clear, think the sorry. next day or that evening, they said they didn't want to sell the club, which was all a bit slightly bizarre. Sorry, Bob, just to be clear, tw we're talking 2019, right? 2019, yeah, that's 2019. Understood. Yeah. Okay, so you said, yeah, there is this famous, uh, in French we call it volte face, where just <laughs> you have the tour of the training ground, it's already well documented in the local press, and then it's like, well, this was nice, but no thanks. Did you think then that this was serious, or was this the beginning and the first kind of move of a very long set of negotiating moves by the existing uh, owners? To be honest, I think, I think it was... I think because we'd sort of got involved in sport and football, you think it's all so different, but this is bizarre. And by that time, you know, it's a bit like going in a car showroom and somebody, you know, you sit in a car and you think, actually, this is really nice. I really like this. And somebody says, oh, you can't buy it, you know? So we thought to ourselves, we put our heads together and said, oh, we want to buy it, you know? And that's why we're... And, and in fairness to everybody involved in at Nice, we, I didn't realise till I got inside the club in August how difficult our actions had been in terms of people who were still working at the club, from Patrick and his team to all the commercial team, everybody. There was no communication. And during that time, you know, I spoke to Vincent at, at, at Nice Matter, I spoke to the fans. I went to see Christina Rossi. So it was, it was an uncomfortable environment because nobody knew what the outcome was, would be at OGC Nice. And it, was a, it wasn't an easy time for people. And I didn't appreciate that till I went into the club in August. Sure. But I mean, I'm not sure people are necessarily going to blame you for trying to get a deal done um, and, and that being difficult. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it, it, it certainly felt like it was being made, made a very, very complicated process. So you talk about this kind of February where you end up visiting the training ground for the first time. How, how soon after does the offer, does an, does an offer go in which, which formally makes Shen Li and his team have to consider something. I think we got it back on. I did. The trouble is, you get so immersed in it and you lose track yeah. of time. I, I think it took, we may have been May by the time we got a dialogue back on. But though, you know, I, I couldn't quote, you know, without going through my calendar. 
Sure. I did have a I did have a meeting with Alex Zeng in London. He came over to see me in London. And then we got a series of meetings with Alex and Chen Lee, and we got it back on track. Um, and then we and then it was all set, but then it got referred to the competition authority because Ineos has a big business, you know, a core business just outside Marseille with a with you know significant revenues. And yeah. because by virtue of that, which is slightly bizarre or very bizarre, it got referred to the competition authorities in late July. So it was an absolute first. You're absolutely right on that. No, we, cre we <laughs> created history. In fairness, and you know, trying to get things done in August in France is not the easiest thing. <laughs> no. Everybody, everybody tried. You know, Jean Pierre was on the phone to Christina Rossi. Christina Rossi, you know, was on the on the phone to everybody in Paris. We were trying through lawyers. We were trying different, and we we got some level of discretion and people in fairness people were very helpful um mm. and it you know it came out with the right result and, and we believe we had a very good transfer window uh but it was it was an acquisition i, I don't think any of us involved from the Ineos side has seen anything like it because we'd sort of say to ginger and andy we're there oh no we're not there etc and we had all these it's the first time i know everybody's got used to zoom but it's the first time we lived our life at various airports on Zoom calls with, you know, Chen Li and Alex Zeng and various people from Ineos. It's quite an interesting process. But anyway, one for the history books now. For sure. Just, just before we move on from this, how would you describe Chen Li after all this? Is a man who perhaps, perhaps understandably, perhaps not, was not particularly media friendly during his time at Ojasinis and someone there was always been some sort of mystery around just because of the nature of how many parts there were to the consortium and this notion of who who's really running things and obviously uh Ojasini's fans have a sort of very sour taste in the mouth when it when it comes to him because well mainly because of some work done by our colleagues at challengers which indicated the club took out a rather bizarre bridge loan with some very questionable terms attached to it from a Luxembourgian um hedge fund over in December with, with reported terms in there that included the fact that all of that loan had to be paid back if Nice weren't in a certain position by a certain amount of matches played? Yeah, I, what I would say about you know, like Chen Li is, was he was never anything other than extremely courteous. He is not, you know, OGC I think could, be, could have been a cardboard box maker. It's a, you know, it's a financial investment. Sure. And, and it was a successful financial investment for them. Um, yeah. That is the nature of the individual. But he's a very smart business guy and he's done M&A and they didn't miss anything. And in fairness, what they left behind in terms of documentation, you know, what we acquired, what they said we were acquiring is exactly what we acquired, which is, which is a good outcome when you do it, an yeah. acquisition. So, so you know, all all fairness to him, really, you know, they made a they made a sensible investment and did well out of it as a financial investment. Two quick ones on this. Finally, how important an ally was Christian Estrosi in this process? Someone who you've mentioned a lot, obviously, in in this kind of passage of the podcast, but has enormous influence in 
um, Nice and, and the wider region politically. And, and then two, do you feel that 100 million euros are a fair price? Um, okay, let's do Christian Rosen first. One of the things, and I'll quickly take you back to, to Lausanne and building a new stadium. Mm. The continental model is so different from the UK model in the, the stadium is invariably owned by the city, right? Yeah. And we're building, you know, we, we put some money into the stadium in Lausanne, so it's a better experience. That's one of the, one of the decisions that was made for the fans, the VIP side, etc. And, you know, you do hear voices that get quite frustrated with the city. And it's, at the end of the day, you think to yourself, these are our biggest partner. They put, in Lausanne, they put a much bigger value into the club than we put into the club. Mm. And we will run the stadium, the catering, and everything else. Slightly different from Nice. But they're our biggest partner. So if you've got a big partner like that, and you're tied up, it, you know, it's your biggest partner over an extended period of time, you have to have a good relationship with those individuals. So we make it our business to have a very good relationship. And it was good to know that, that you were dealing with, you know, up to, they're not all politicians, but some of them are actually voted in politician. So it was good to have had that experience when you come down to Nice. And again, similar situation, you know, for the Euros, you've got absolutely phenomenal stadium there. And mm. it is provided by the city. So your relationship with the city and with the mayor, with Christian Rossi, is very important. And, you know, Jean-Pierre has a great relationship with Christian Rossi. And I've met him on a couple of occasions and he's, you know, you can see why he was industry minister for France and he runs Nice very effectively and he's got a serious interest in sports and he'd like to make Nice more of a sports city. So it really tied in with what we like. You know, we've got Team Ineos and the cycling there. Which is, a, which is a great combination for France. I mean, cycling's a religion in France, which, which is great. It's, I still hope that we can kick off the Tour de France there at the end of, the, end of August, which, would be, which yeah. would be great to tie the two things together. But he has been nothing more than supportive and, and helpful. But at the same time, he's very measured. You know, he's just, you know, when you talk to him personally, when somebody's fallen off a motorbike and broken 39 bones in their body, they've got some, they yeah. can, they've done something that I'm not capable of doing. Because, <laughs> you know, I fell off a motorbike once and I didn't, I didn't get back on. So, you know, you have to recognize that, you know, he's, he's a special individual. So, and, it, and he's very supportive and helpful of the club and, you know, has some very good ideas. And it's an important dialogue for us. Yeah, for sure. Especially, as you say, with the, with the stadium ownership. Would you eventually like Ojise uh, to own its stadium? Maybe in, as you say, the kind of maybe second or even third phase of this project? I'm not sure that is important. I think it's, Im I think it's important that we get more, we can do more with it, if that makes sense. One okay. of the things that we're doing with Lausanne is, you know, we've, we're going to run it so we, we've got a pub, we've got these restaurant concepts that we're talking about, we've got shop concept, we've got a forecourt that we can do things with, we 
you know, one of the things that I said is let's have, you know, it, not everybody can do VIP. And if you're a real fan, you just want to come to a game with a good sight line, let's do sort of premium economy seats and make them slightly better, you know, mm. and let's make the bouvets good. So we've put a lot of thought into that. I think that level of input is important to us because I think one thing we need to work on with the city and obviously the tram getting the stadium is important but access to the stadium isn't good quite often yeah. you know, these architects build these fantastic stadiums nobody likes to talk about car traffic but it is the reality of life we we still need to work on better access to the stadium you know drop-offs shuttles uh, so that we can get more people in and out more effectively. So that that's on the agenda. But you know, we clearly have a very productive dialogue with the mayor's office, and we've been talking to the mayor's office about the potential to increase, you know, our training space, and again have an excellent dialogue because he's very supportive of the sporting side. So it's it's a very collaborative and productive relationship. But it's important. Absolutely. I noticed we skipped past the, the, the second part of my previous question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insist upon it. 100 million euros, do we think fair price in the end? Or was it a question of very much just actually, we really want this, we want to get this done. And actually, if it's not necessarily the value today, that this might have been worth, which is what certain you know, financial experts have suggested throughout the process, but it will be in, in, in certainly that and more than that in four or five years' time. Well, let, let me put it this one of the reasons we went to France and we didn't do Premiership is we looked at Premiership and, you know, I've said this quite a few times, you know, if you want a top six club in the Premiership, the price tag was two billion and up, although yep. nobody's ever paid that. Mm -hmm. You know, probably the closest is when Kronke bought out Usmanov for that piece of Arsenal. Otherwise, nobody's paid that. People have, people have put that valuation on and they've worked it up and there is some credibility to that. But... That is a very big number. Um, if we look at what we have paid in Nice and its opportunity, and we now say to ourselves, with a fair wind, which it looks like we'll get, we're in, we're in Europa League territory. We're sort of Everton Cup territory, as I would call it in the UK. <laughs> I've seen you like this, Rex. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to change my club, actually. I'm not sure Everton is the best example at the moment. Although they did, you know, under Ancelotti, they did improve a bit. But I think if we look at that perspective, and, I, you know, whether we paid £100 million for it is a bit questionable because then you sort of sure. you go to your stock of players and your valuation of players. Is it actually that much? I actually think we paid fair value for Nice. We didn't overpay, we didn't underpay. I think that's the way we would describe it. But I think there's not many Mediterranean clubs in a location like that. And I think it was good value for that and for the opportunity and what we can do with it. And we've already seen that. I think we're slightly ahead of what we want to do, yeah. assuming we get Europa next season or this coming season. Yes, and for those of you listening out there who may be not aware of the sort of technicalities of the situation as it stands, Ujicinis would qualify for the Europa League if the cup finals either do not occur for the Coupe de France 2019-20 and the Coupe de la Ligue final 2019-20, or if Paris Saint-Germain are to uh, win there. That's, uh, I think, a, a really interesting sort of note to, to, to move on to. Generally, what you came with 
Bob. And but the the question is, ultimately, we've known business people to come into the world of football, certainly in the last five years, without having an enormous amount of knowledge around football. And that is tended that for them to then bring quite important agents with them into the process, agents who have then gone on to basically control club transfer policy for four or five years. Is Ineos working with any individual there? Is everything 100% in sort of Jean-Pierre Hiver and Julien Fournier's hands? No, we would. Uh, I don't see us as a club that was... I mean, Ineos is a company that really doesn't use consultants. And I think what you talk about there is, you know, companies being run by consultants. Now, mm. clearly, having said that, we can see some models that are working quite well with that you know, in the premiership and elsewhere. Mm. But it's something, I think, as we grow in your sport, it's not something It's not something we would want to do. And I think going forward, it's not something we would need to do. And I think if we come back to our model of, for a lot of what we want to do, we want to develop our own anyway. So yeah. that model, that model isn't, isn't for us. I think that model has worked in certain situations where people have come in and said, we don't know a lot, do it for us. Sure. But we're, we're not a company where we ask people to do it for us. I think we appreciate that there are roles that we cannot do, ergo the president role, ergo the director of football, because it's taken Jean-Pierre, it's taken Julian 20 odd years to develop those sorts of skills and negotiating skills and know the people. And Jean-Pierre has, has, has lived his life in Nice and has great relationships and he yep. works well. He knows all the other club owners. He knows the league officials, etc. So mm. we always recognize it's a bit like, you know, the America's Cup, you've got Grant Summer. We, you know, he's the guy who's won America's Cups before. You know, I, I mean, clearly there's Ben Ainsley, but you bring in skill sets that we don't have. But at the same time, I think we take pride in challenging, you know, football, I think all sport, but football is quite a monoculture. Mm. And I have noticed that there is this tendency I suppose there's sort of a Mourinho factor to it that he had to deal with, which was, well, you're not a footballer, so how can you, how can you, how can you know, how can you ask? And it's not, we don't have anybody like that, yeah. but I have seen it. And, and to my mind, as business guys, we can apply peasant logic. There's some stupid stuff done by football people who lived all their life in football. Yes, very true. I mean, I mean, there's two things that I would say, you know, I have done in Lausanne that have made a difference. We were, we're 15 points ahead in the Challenge League this season. Last season, we missed the playoffs by one point. So what happens is you get this immense chorus across the club, we need to change the coach. And I'm like, well, that would basically put us guys on our fourth coach. Do you really think? And we gave the guy one year. Do you really think that is our fundamental problem? And now this year, everybody thinks, you know, Giorgio Contini, because he's 15 points ahead, is, you know, is the chosen one. And he is. Yeah. Giorgio is very good. Do you see what I mean? Is that, that, you know, 
I heard most of the football people telling me, you know, we should change the coach. So I think you, you have to take it back to that logic. And I think that's what we do within Ineos with the sporting guys. The other thing was we had a player who had a bad knee problem. He needed a cadaver to replace some of his sort of uh, his cartilage. Mm. And it was reasonably successful. We saw him through recuperation, but then they wanted to extend his contract. And I'm like, guys, I just don't see him lasting a season. And, and it's what transpired. And I would not renew the contract. So I think you can apply sensible, fundamental business sense to sporting issues. And I think it's folly if you don't do that. And that is what we do. Yeah. And ergo, we don't need somebody else doing that job for us because we're more than capable of doing that overall role. What we can't do is the very specific roles that have taken a lifetime to establish. I also get the sense from you today, Bob, that actually you, part of this whole process for you and for Ineos as well is it's part of the it's part of the challenge of achieving something sustainable. You know, I'm not even sure if, if, if Jorge Mendes knocked on your door today, I'm not even sure whether you'd, you know, you'd open it because it is, a one, again, we discussed a little bit in terms of putting in a huge injection into the first transfer window. It's not cheating as such, but it's, it's seeking to take measures that could achieve short-term success, but medium to long-term destabilization. Yeah, but at the same time, you take somebody like George Mendes and you think to yourself, he has huge influence in the game he is at the top of his game in many ways in terms of what he does there is probably a productive relationship for us to have there yeah but it doesn't mean it's a similar job to the one perhaps he does at wolves you know yeah. we don't need that you know and i think that's where we are and we're learning the business and you're right we we want to establish something here I mean, in many ways, sort of, you know, saving cycling, that they have goals in their own right, but they were, they were ready formed. I think with football, we're trying to do something that is, has more of a growth pattern to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. One, one point that was raised with me before this, was, which I thought was quite interesting, was this, you know, the Ben Arfa, the Balotelli, the Schneider. Mm. And that approach to players, and it, it did make me think. What a, what a, I just, I do think that's quite an interesting approach. Is to find, you know, to find value in players. And I've I've heard it, which isn't the most courteous, but I've heard it called that sort of denty can approach. You know, <laughs> which yeah. which which isn't fair to the individuals concerned, but it, it's sort of you know to get more value. Um, I think my, my understanding is, and it's not, and, and you know, Jean-Pierre knows a lot more about football than I do, and some of it was very successful. The alliance has never been as full as when Balotelli was a no. niece. So, you know, that in itself has a commercial logic, it's good for the fans, everything else. So it is an approach you can take. I think because we have a project and a plan, what and part of Ineos and its sporting DNA and the company itself is it's all about pursuit of excellence. And I think that's pursuit of excellence in the dressing room as well and behaviors. 
So I don't think it's not something we need to do at the moment. But it's quite interesting because I said to Julian, that's not something we want to do. But then I see somebody like Tadic at Ajax, and yeah. I just thought he was an absolute revelation, which he wasn't when he was at Southampton, to my mind. Mm. And you just think, if you could scout players like that, that for whatever reason, and I don't know what the reason was, that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the player at Southampton that he has become at Ajax, then that's where you can find value. And I do think that's quite interesting. Mm. But I think for us, I think pursuit of excellence, professionalism, people like Dante in the dressing room leading that example, the guy who keeps himself fit, has a good, you know, but creates a good atmosphere as well. I think it's very important people enjoy coming to work as well. You know, there is that element. Um, so I think that that's that's quite interesting, but it's it that isn't an approach I think we would take now. Mm. Now, having said that, my brother is a huge fan of Cantona, so if you can find the Cantona too for us, <laughs> I think that could be an interesting one for us. But anyway. The question I wanted to ask, Bob, is obviously on this line of thought, the man who is kind of linked as the Balotelli of the summer rumour for Nises Mario Goetze of Dortmund. Uh, Fonny has already gone on the record to deny that. So you're suggesting absolutely at this stage of the project, not something we're going to look to do, spend really considerable wages on someone who has uh, become somewhat of a quote-unquote dented camp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm taking that expression from somebody else. It's not mine, but no, it isn't. I don't think that's approach the, the approach for us. We, if we can find somebody who's sort of the next Dante for us, I'm sure you know you do need. I hadn't appreciated to what extent you need those leaders in the dressing room, even if they're quiet leaders. People who lead by example, behaviour, commitment, training discipline. Those are, you know. One of the things that we're doing, Christian, and we're not, we're not quite there, is I, as part of this journey, we want to, we want to build recognisable characteristic in terms of the type of player. Now, I, it really resonates when I speak to Patrick and I speak to Julian and they say, you know, we want intelligent, technically good players. Mm. Now, the other thing, and I sort of overuse this phrase, is that sort of the peasant logic to me that I'd like us to add to that is the athleticism. And if I look at the basic statistics for the Premier League and look at the top teams, apart from Manchester United under Mourinho, mm. the teams that covered the most ground were the most productive in terms of where they placed. Sure. And even sort of the lower teams that punched above their weight, like Burnley, they put the miles in. So I think, and that's, you know, athleticism is part of sort of Ineos as well in terms of the way it approaches things. So that's a characteristic I'd like to add to that. You know, so you recognise, you know, an Ineos football player. I think that's going to be quite important in the future. I think it'd be good if we could do that. Mm. You know, for me, somebody like a Bernardo Silva, who is technically adept, you know, very intelligent about the way he moves the ball and the space he finds for himself. But at the end of the day, he just runs his socks off all the game and he's tenacious, that sort of profile. Yeah, it's, I was going to ask you about that because you use the word athleticism and it's a very kind of murky term in football. Some journalists like to use it as a you know, big guy, 
some people like to use it as ground covered. You're very much kind of going on, on the kind of latter definition, right? Someone who has, as yeah, you say, really yeah. tenacious. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, in many ways, sort of kilometers covered is, yeah. is sort of more for me than, you know, you know, the, the sort of, I'm using Mourinho a lot, but he liked big players, didn't he? I think it was an approach that worked, you know, big physical players. And there's a place for that, but that's, that's another characteristic. I'm also getting the sense of, okay, so we look, we want to create a sort of Ineos type player that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm also getting the sense that with a lot of your answers and kind of analysis today that you really uh, care a lot about data in general and your kind of own personal analysis before even you maybe enter into a conversation with Patrick and uh, Julien and, and Jean-Pierre is, is, you know, based on, even if it's just, you know, envelope uh, calculations, looking at certain trends in the Premier League elsewhere. Is that sort of how your, your mind is, has in the kind of last nine to ten months approached football well even even when you started at Lausanne it would make sense based on your financial background yeah I was just about to say it's the way we can challenge it it's the way we can, you know you've been brought up to assess the situation is that the data is important you know the fundamental data is very important I mean the one thing we that we haven't touched upon which which and Patrick said this to me and, and we we it's sort of goes back to our Denti Can conversation, is the one thing he can't change is mentality. And I agree with that. It's set very early. So mm. that analysis of the right mentality is very important. In many ways, it's probably the hardest thing to do. You know, recruiting players is no different than, you know, trying to find, you know, in banking, you know, a great new employee. You do a yeah. lot of homework, you do a lot of interviews, but there is a there is a factor you can never close down until you've worked with a person over an extended period of time. Mm. But the mentality thing, you can't fix the mentality. I think a lot of people have seen that, you know, and you've got successive coaches trying with particular players. You know, what's he what's he called the guy the Manchester United guy? I heard somebody talking about him at the weekend, who's now at Middlesbrough. You know, countless people have tried to deal with an innate natural talent that you know that he has too many he's had too many distractions in his life and you can't fix it and i do things like that are quite important to me yeah yeah I, I think the concept of mentality is an interesting one because you're right most of the time it's impossible to change but there is a notable example that sticks in my mind of someone who was at ogesenis neil mope who was then considered as one of the most exciting youth academy talents uh, even got some substitute appearances in the first team at a really, really record young age, fell out with nearly everyone, goes to Saint-Étienne, doesn't do very well, goes on loan to Brest, um, also doesn't do very well. And then it was as if when he arrived in England, flicked like a switch, ended up at Brentford and, and now is a sort of leading light for Brighton. So yeah. I, I guess, I, you know, I, I guess there are some examples of of, of when young players realise the just how lucky they are to be in the position that they are to then try and go on and execute on that. And, and I, think, I guess sometimes you can stimulate an, a change in work ethic, but perhaps fundamental mentality is, is something more complicated to change. Uh, but you've just, you've just mentioned two clubs there that coming back to data who fundamentally bring data to the fore, you know, yeah. both Brentford, which is a very well run club, which uses data because the guy who owns it, uh, Benham, has a has a sort of a, a betting 
betting business is a core business, doesn't he? So he, yep. he, sports betting business, he uses data for that and they use that in player selection. And, and he used to work with sort of Bloomer, Brighton, which is another extremely well club, which I assume as well is data driven. And I thought, I thought it was quite interesting that Brighton took uh, Potter, who I thought was quite an interesting coach, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it was certainly, certainly, a, certainly a big risk. We'll, we'll just do one more question, Bob, and, Nice, yeah. and then we'll move on to sort of French football in general. Uh, otherwise, I feel like we're going to be here until tomorrow as much as I'm very happy to be. Um, I, wanted, I want to just focus on the human side, and I, I want to know whether you got the chance to meet Le Berger, Paul Capietto, who was very much seen as the sort of Augustinis super fan, known by the popular Sud and Augustinis fans in general for his red cape and his bicycle, would also follow uh, cycling events in the Al-Maritime very closely and would, would try and run after uh, stages on, on tour. Someone who really encapsulated everything that I, and I think many journalists think of when I think of Augustinis. Um, and, and if you didn't, sort of what did you think about him and, and, and is there going to be some sort of way maybe to honor his his memory, not specifically as an individual going forward, but kind of what he embodied, that just pure Niçois, very uh, strong passion? Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't meet him. And I, I hadn't appreciated sort of until his sort of sad demise. I mean, I, I knew of him, but, but then he came to the fore in terms of what an amazing character he was and how committed to the club he was. Had he been, I think he'd been a ski guy, hadn't he, yeah. as well? A ski guy. So, no, and, you know, and those sorts of people are very important to the club. And I know, you know, Virginia and Nicolo run that sort of, that side of the club were, were, were very sort of upset at his passing and, and what a significant individual he was. So... Again, I think we've got sort of overtaken events, and I've not been down there, so I haven't heard quite so much. But I, I am sure, you know, they marked it anyway. But I'm sure, they, you know, they'll be thinking about something on a on a longer term basis. That's the way they are. Absolutely, and obviously, everyone who get French football news uh, continues to send all our best to to his family and and his yeah. friends and people who really cared about him because someone who just embodied the passion of French football that we all have here. Um, right, we but jump it into is, the... But it, is, it is real, that, isn't it? I went to, I went to Rennes, and I, I'd flown a lot, as I mentioned to you. Yeah. But, you know, I found a flight, a flyby flight out of Southend Airport, which I added to my airports of London, to fly <laughs> to Rennes. But, but what a super atmosphere there, you know? You've got real support. Um, it, again, another significant attribute of the French league, to be honest. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's absolutely true. And, and okay, per pound, there are less fans of football in France than there are in somewhere like England or Spain or Germany, mainly because of the importance that rugby continues to have on the kind of national scene. But the intensity and the passion of the most loyal, you know, that sort of 5 to 10%, I don't think is... is 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 matched i mean certainly maybe matched but it's definitely i don't think anywhere necessarily has it stronger than yeah. than than france and that's why it's such a it's such a yeah so it, it makes it makes league incredibly enjoyable in that respect um right so we said we said we promised people at the beginning of this podcast but we're going to jump into some issues about french football so we better do that okay. <laughs> um so i guess 
the the news on everybody's minds at the moment is, and especially in France now, uh, when we're recording this, only two really full days have elapsed at the beginning of the déconfinement, the sort of de-escalation of quarantine there, is that France remains, as it stands, the only league to have uh, cancelled or terminated itself uh, as the other big four European leagues try and see whether they might be able to get action back on or not for the rest of the 2019-20 season. Ten games were still unplayed of this Ligue 1 campaign. Do you think the LFP should have waited a little bit longer before deciding to annul the Ligue 1 season? I think with those sort of decisions, you damned if you do, damned if you don't. I think to have a level of certainty early is actually quite helpful. Um, I do take the view that to sort of get yourself established for the new season has benefits associated with it. Um, in terms of the players, the players coming back. Having said that, I will be personally delighted to see some football when the Bundesliga returns this, this weekend. And I think it's quite remarkable what they've done. I've seen the protocols, the details. And I think that would be quite helpful, not just because people want to see and it's a positive thing, but I actually think the testing around it and the data that will emerge might actually be quite helpful to sure. solving well, not solving, but helping this jigsaw about this COVID and how it works, how it's passed. So I'm quite positive about that. I think I like people taking decisions. So I'm not, I won't criticise it for taking that decision, to be honest. And it was sort of caught between, you know, the old broadcasting deal, the new one, plus the political environment and states that, you know, comments that have been made. If... If your country says this is the way we're going to move forward, your hands are tied anyway. And you can't question that. And I think, to be honest, that's what happened in France. You say the decision has provided perhaps more semblance of certainty than the other four divisions have, but the situation that Ojasinis finds itself in is complicated. You don't know whether you're planning a summer transfer window for Europa League football or not, and you might not know. Uh, if FFF President Noel Legre gets his way, which is he wants to play those two cup finals, the Coupe de France final and the Coupe de la Ligue final, just before the start of the 2020-2021 season, you might not know, uh, even throughout the entire window, whether you're preparing for Europa League football or not. That's true. I, I accept that. That is, that is true. And that is something that we will have to accommodate. I don't, it is what it is, Christian. Mm. For sure. So what is your overall assessment of how the LFP handled the COVID-19 situation? You're happy, you say, with the decisiveness. And I do think there was certainly something to be said about being brave as a, as a sort of footballing nation and being the first major league to make that decision. And as you said, the government stepped in quite decisively um, to basically say that you know there just wouldn't be any sporting activity even behind closed doors until earliest yeah. August, but yeah. you know there has been a real sense of mess really amongst both Liga presidents and then also how much the LFP was even in control of the process, um, not for example leading those initial negotiations with Canapris and Bean Sport. Do you think that what we've seen in the last six weeks necessitates some changes from a reform perspective at the LFP level? Or 
are you satisfied with with how things went? To be honest, because because we have the benefit of having Jean Pierre and Julian, I have been less involved in the sort of toing and froing mm. within the French league through the LFP. I've been more concerned and more vocal about what's happening in Switzerland. Yeah. Where we have a situation where, you know, the season can be voided. It's a smaller national league. And I am concerned that, you know, you have a super league that's professional, you have a challenge league that's semi-professional. Mm. The world we're moving to, and this is, I, I think it's beholden to sports administrators to think not what, what the situation is today, what is the situation as we emerge from this? And I think it's the same in the UK as well. That, you know, sports administrators, you know, quite often they have very good titles, they have presidents, chief executives. They don't behave like presidents, chief executives of companies in terms of guiding the way forward and being advocates. They, they tend to be more secretariat. And I think that's what football sort of suffers, suffers from to some extent. Um, and I've been quite vocal in the Swiss press recently that I, th you know, the, there's not enough teams in the top division and you should have one professional league because I don't see people going back in stadiums this year very much, if at all. No. And the smaller leagues, you know, depend on ticket sales. So if it was semi-pro, it's now amateur it won't survive and you know administrators need to look about geographic jurisdictions you know do you play east west north south that they're talking about in the uk and i think it's the time for a lot of sports administrators to step up with some vision because covid is the world has changed with covid you know the the money in people's pockets over the next five years will not be the same no um the way people approach stadiums, their comfort in stadium, it, it may change over a longer term basis. It may never be quite what it was. So I think you need sports administrators with some vision and ability to execute on that and advocate for that. And I don't, you know, across various leagues, I don't see that. It, it, it doesn't seem to come to the fore. Is that a flaw by design? Because often the individuals who are president of the LFP, CEO of the, LF, of the LFP, whatever, and, and obviously the, the Swiss, British, um, <coughs> Spanish equivalents, they're often people, sort of quote-unquote football people, people who have been in the game and people who might not necessarily have had to deal with crisis situations no, like as a CEO I, of a business. I, I, th I think that is right. Um, and it, you come back to football being sort of a monoculture. I mean, if I look at French football, the exposure I have had, and I was there in sort of August in Paris, is to the DNCG. Yeah. And I thought, you know, going, going, talking to, you know, presenting to Jean-Marc Mikula, he was a guy who was absolutely comfortable with the subject matter, asked penetrating questions. When we said, this is our football model, he basically said, well, that's what 10 clubs tell us, 10 out, of, 10 out of 20. And, you know, you respect that sort of comment because it comes from somebody who comes from a finance background and understands how football clubs work. So, you know, football is not totally bereft of good people in, you know, 
in in the federations and the governing bodies that are capable. But I think, yeah, some of the ex-football people who sit on these things, they've, they've got limited vision and it's not helpful. Mm. I mean, we've had quite a few conversations with UEFA. Now, I know UEFA get sort of quite a lot of criticism in the press, but our experience has been very positive. It's sort of staff with smart people from, you know, banking, legal, accountancy backgrounds. They, they, they're different disciplines, do a good job. They're prepared to listen. They're, you know, they want to be helpful. I think they like us as an owner. That helps. Um, yeah, and and you can have a, a sensible grown-up dialogue with them, and that's that's quite important. And and I think in a way they they understand the issue of the smaller national leagues and the challenges they face better than some of the smaller national leagues themselves. That's you know mm. that is the challenge. Does the obviously the fact that you know there is around two hundred and fifty million uh, euros worth of TV money now not coming into uh, the LFP coffers, and then also by extension, Ligue 1, Ligue 2 clubs coffers. Does that somewhat negate financially the progression we're going to see in TV rights money that Media Pro is due to bring next season? Um, not as a whole, but specifically for Ojasenis. I don't know exactly uh, what portion of your TV rights money for 1920 you'd already received pre-COVID. I don't think our situation is worse than anybody else's. Um, I think because we can't return, the economics of it are not, are not quite, it's not quite as bad as we're playing football and that check isn't received. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, clearly that new, that new television deal is of significant importance to the league. Now, one of the things that you did that you did ask was, you know, what's the what can we learn from the Premier League? What can the Premier League learn from us? I think what I what I think put the Premier League on the map is, you know, other than securing that big broadcasting deal was and you talk about sport administrators you know they don't get much better and you can understand why they had that significant whip round for him than than scudamore of the premier league but i think what he did was it was like this is this is a select club that people have to fight to get membership of but then within the club he made it competitive within the club and i come back to what makes the premier league exciting and I think is one of its main attributes is the quality of football and it's driven by that top end of the table. And they share a disproportionate, in my mind, with merit, proportion of TV rights. And I think that's very important. I think if the French League want to grow, it's not, you know, I think PSG does an exceptional job and is an exceptional football club, but we need a group of teams that gets closer to that, as you've seen in the, in the Premiership. And I think division of broadcasting income is quite important in that regard. The more, you know, the more, you, the more you're successful, the more you should win. 
I don't think you can have a socialist regime within a within a football league. I don't think you will challenge the other football leagues on that basis. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely, it makes sense. I guess the question to follow that up with is okay. That 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 is a, certainly a, a reasonable argument in terms of how the pot, the sort of money pot is divvied up. But what is your take on FFP in general and its current stance? It obviously prevents a smaller club from being bought by an individual who wants to make it progress very quickly. I mean, you're not maybe in the same situation as Ineos at Ojasinis, as you were saying before, it's a club that has in the last sort of eight years been in the top six quite consistently. Um, but it does prevent at least these big whales from ultimately being challenged um, to an end that could make football more entertaining and more unpredictable. Yeah, I think it comes back to a matter of balance. There, I do get that there is financial fair play did create a level of protectionism for the big clubs. I think what financial fair play did exceptionally well and has been a real positive for the game is improving the solvency of clubs through financial fair play. Yeah. So that they didn't overextend themselves, so that they did wash their face. Because one of the things, you know, about sort of journalists in football, and I'd like, I, to be honest, I like the perspective of journalists in football more than sort of ex-players and pundits. I think they're more honest about it. I don't think they're always as financially well-briefed as they should be. You know, they talk about the premiership. The premiership is sort of like a, you know, you pay, you know, you pay $10 for a glue vine at a Christmas fair. You know, <laughs> it, only, it only works for that period. I mean, the premiership does not print money if it's not in operation. Does that, you know, it is, it is not a particularly profitable, running a football club is not a particularly profitable experience, even in the premiership. No, I mean, and, and that's exactly... You know, I think that's, that's what you guys have, have shown a, a full understanding and acceptance of, of sort of, okay, I can pay 100 million euros for Orsini's, you know, or we could try and do some monster record-breaking deal for a, for a club in, you know, the top six of the Premier League. But, the, you know, in terms of actual making money as business people, uh, the margins are, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's a different ballpark, but the margin game is 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 as complicated if you look at the, the big clubs they're big clubs by virtue of initially because of attendance that was the main thing yeah made them big yeah and then they built on that over a period of time and they've got the the record of heritage that draws players draws fans historically moved to a digital platform all those issues so there is validity to they can afford it versus back to Jack Walker at Blackburn putting his whole fortune into a club sure. and it wins the premiership, but it's not, it's not a sustainable franchise. So I do, I do get what financial fair play is about. And I think the challenge is, is to find a formula that can work for you and to do something you know, we're the same as 10 other clubs in terms of what we, our approach. We need to, we need to perform that model better than nine others, don't we? That's what we need to do. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, the thing I have more of an issue with, and I've had that dialogue with UEFA, is is multi-club. Because I actually quite like multi-club. Because I think it provides pathways for players. I think it's quite interesting for fans to think about a player moving from one club to another that they know and follow the, follow the progress. I think there's a certain appeal to that. It stops money leaving the game to third parties. I think that's a very positive aspect to it. So the money is reinvested in football. Um, and I think you can put, for the most part, if you, you sort of choose your clubs, there's not many situations where one team is going to be playing another team in a competitive situation. And you can provide optionality in terms, mm. in terms of what competitions teams enter. So I think in the new world, multi-clubs could actually be quite helpful. And my, my, my own thought as well is, if football in the US continues to grow, what are people going to say in 10 years' time when the US clubs want to play the European clubs? Are they going to say, you know, Manchester City can't play New York City or Red Bull can't play, you know, Leipzig can't play? I don't think you're going to be in a situation to stop that. Sure. I mean, obviously, there, there then ends up being a very sort of murky conflict of interest argument, right? <laughs> when, it, when it comes to all that and, and, you know, the notion, obviously, there was a situation where in the Europa League recently where Salzburg and Leipzig could have come up against each other. And, and the argument there was one of, well, it's, you know, potentially in Red Bull's interest to have um, uh, potentially Salzburg progress so that they can, imp- you know, that potentially goes towards improving the UEFA coefficient for Austria. Um, and then, you know, brings more money into the league and then allows the club to be more profitable there. And obviously you then, you do open the possibility of, you know, and 95% of it is conspiracy theory type talk. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I appreciate that. Yeah, but, but that's the problem. You, you know, you should, you should solve, you know, you should solve for what isn't conspiracy theory to my mind which isn't a problem. Sure, sure. Let's jump into the Media Pro deal. Obviously, this is the big sort of 1.15 billion uh, yeah. euro contract that uh, sees Ligue 1 TV rights pass, at least principally, from Canapus and Beatsport to Media Pro as the uh, primary delivery uh, sort of uh, broadcast firm of uh, all the French football from next season. Does it not concern you that Syria passed on a deal with Media Pro only months before Media Pro struck a deal for the Ligue 1 rights on the basis that the Italian league felt the company could not provide sufficient bank guarantees? Well, it's, it, you'd rather that didn't happen. And, you know, my understanding is guarantees were not asked for. Um, Again, I come back to Christian. It is what it is at this time. <laughs> yeah, and, you, know, you know what? What do you do about it? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you know, and there's no company in the world, possibly by the, ex- with the exception of sort of Amazon, that isn't <coughs> negatively impacted by the the, mm-hmm. the circumstances we're going through. What is the worst that happens? You 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 would have to you'd have to rebid it, and you'd be back to where you started from. You you know clubs will have to be careful. They don't spend money before they've got it. That's the problem. That's the problem. Is that if you take a look at you know even last year's DNCG publications, and it's not even it's, this is not an Ojasinis thing, but 
there are eight, maybe eight clubs in Ligue 1 right now who have already been actively justifying certain bits, bits on a balance sheet because this deal is coming. And I guess, you know, I guess you would just say to that, well, <laughs> that's silly by them. It's just poor business management, ultimately. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, the second thing as well is, do you understand the anxiety, though, that, you know, there's not a, I mean, there's several Ligue 1 presidents that have expressed an anxiety about this, um, especially because French football has not had brilliant experiences with Chinese-backed firms in the last five years. There's still a lot of anger about what happened to Sochaux. Um, which was on the latest, obviously, um, ownership uh, in Ligue 2. Um, do, do you understand that, obviously, this uncertainty brings brings a sense of anxiety? I do, but I don't think, you know, with you don't everything share. else we're dealing with at the moment, it's not, it, it can't be, I, I'd be surprised if it, it it is anybody's number one anxiety, unless, as you say, you've spent the money already, which is imprudent, I don't, you know, yeah. What, do you, what can you do if you're imprudent? It's it's that's that's your responsibility, and your club and your fans will be impacted directly by that. Mm-hmm. Bob, does any of us and, and and yourself do you guys intend to own Ojis in East forever? <laughs> forever is a long time. We're not. I, I have to say, my brother and his partners, once they do something, they stick with it. They're not. They're not. It's not a short-term thing. Mm. And I don't think they're going to stop spending time in the South of France. So <laughs> I, I actually, yeah, I don't think we're not, we're not like the prior owners. It's not, it's not a financial thing. It's, it's something, you know, we, we're on a journey here. We sort of, we sort of see it as a five year journey to achieve something. Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean at the end of five years we're going to sell it. That, that, that means we want to bring some success to the club and put that on a sustainable basis. So, no, we're not, we're not, we're not in any way planning to do this as a, something that is flipped. I just, it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not the approach we take. We're here, we're here to achieve something and, you know, write a bit of a legacy for ourselves in the process, I think, to be honest. Mm. And is there, obviously it's been widely reported as something that you've discussed a lot. I don't really want to go into the particulars about looking at Premier League opportunities. You've obviously mentioned this idea a lot in, in, over the course of this podcast about owning multiple clubs potentially and, and then how that works as a network. Is there, is there a situation where Ineos does bite the bullet and, and makes an unbelievable acquisition of, of a, one of these top six Premier League clubs that then becomes the kind of crown jewel in, in the overall Ineos football pillar? You never say never, but I, I just don't see it on the agenda at the moment. You mm. know, valuations are a long way off. Um, these are, you know, these are difficult times for, for, for everybody. And sure. we've, got, we've got more than enough to do at the moment to keep us busy with these. And on top of that, you know, my brother and he's, and he's you know, Andy and Andy and John want to win the America's Cup. Mm. They want to have more success in cycling. They've they've sort of moved into motor racing. That that's that's a lot to keep you busy on on top of running a major, you know, chemical petrochemical company. So yeah, no, but when, you put, when you put it like that, there's only so much a few men can do. Um, Absolutely, yeah. 
just a couple more, but we really appreciate your time today. And I'm sure the perspective has, has been really, really valuable and appreciated by the listenership, uh, both non ogecinese fans and ogecinese fans. In your opinion, does the LFP have an adequate strategy in place for internationalizing Liga over the next five years? It was somewhat ridiculed last summer with this attempted Washington DC friendly tournament between four clubs, uh, Bordeaux, Marseille, Saint-Étienne, and Montpellier, uh, and sort of six people turning up to a game. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's something that the LFP has, has tried to work on more. We've seen it more on the kind of social media side. But, you know, ultimately, aside from we have Neymar, that's good for viewing figures, it's been at least not a very transparent strategy to internationalize the league. I don't, I, I'm not, it's one of those things I need to get more engaged in because we want to compete with the top teams within Liga, but at the same time, you know, we want to work with them to, to bring a better product to the fore. And it, it strikes me there's a lot that isn't being done and we need to do more and we need help to do that. You know, we need more sort of, more thought about what is French football about, to my mind, as manifested in clubs. One of the things I first said when I came into the club to Jean-Pierre and Julian is, why don't we do overseas tours? And, you know, the US is pretty well sort of spoken for, Asia's pretty well spoken for. One of the comments that emerged was, you know, with the connection with, with Africa, if you take a 20-year view, should... Mm. And the, you know, should we do more in Africa? And you can see the way that country is growing. It, it will obviously have growing pains. I think Cote d'Ivoire is hosting the next uh, Africa Cup of Nations. Mm. There may be something there, but you want somebody sort of thinking about this and pulling groups together. And, and I just don't see that. I don't see that coming to the fore, but I do think things like that are an opportunity. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things we haven't touched upon is PSG. I think PSG are fantastic for the league. I just think we need to try and get more clubs just that bit closer. I think to have Mbappé and Neymar in the league, two of the best players in the world, is, is absolutely phenomenal. And we need to retain players like that or find the next players like that. We don't, you know, everybody, I, I noticed with the start of the Bundesliga, everybody's talking about Jaden Sancho and Ampadu, you know, various premiership players that are playing in the Bundesliga. And we have tried to do that. I spent some time between Christmas and New Year with a player and his father because we were trying to get a young player from the premiership. And I think that would add to the league as well, to give it some profile, you know, to get players from other leagues coming through. Because, I, you know, if you look at Jaden Sancho versus what's he called, Phil Foden, there's only, one, to my mind, there's only one, one individual who made the right decision there. And I think in France we could do that. And I think it would be quite interesting. It would add to the story. There's, there's no one way we can improve the profile, but I do think we have to work on, work on these stories. You know, Kamavinga is a great story, isn't he? What's the young guy at Leon? Is that Cherky? You know, you've got, some, you've got some great players coming through that we need to sort of shine the spotlight on. And the other bit that 
there's less of than I would like to see is some of the older players coming back to the league, to the, the next Dante. You know, we saw Cashel mm. they come back to Bordeaux, but it's, it's not the most sort of established rooms, is it? No. No, and, and oftentimes that's because of the quite considerable wage discrepancy. Yeah. Um, obviously between wherever they've been, because typically you know, someone like Laurent Cossiani is a pretty unique example in that is someone who made the conscious decision to say, actually, you know what? Well, it was, it was ultimately a personal situation. His wife basically said, we've had enough. And <laughs> I, want to, I want to start the rest of, in the rest of our lives and, and, and put our two kids into, into school somewhere that is, um, you know, that is somewhere where they're going to grow up and, and, and go through secondary school and, and, and into university. Right. But, but you're right. I mean, clubs failed to play on that human side enough. You know, clubs failed to even consider to, to try and make that argument. Um, you know, and often, often that's difficult. I, I don't blame the gang clubs for that. If an agent is, you know, the kind of gatekeeper and if, it's, if you can't get past the agent who obviously wants that final contract at 32 or 31 to be as big as possible, it's difficult, yeah. sometimes difficult to get through to the, the players in question. But, uh, and I know that there's at least three clubs that have tried uh, to make the same argument to Olivier Gilles and um, it's just not, just not succeeded so far. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're yeah. I think there's some really interesting ideas there. And Bordeaux did try, and it was something that was generally on their mind when they brought in Josh Madger last year from Sunderland, who had got a bit of notoriety from that Netflix series called Sunderland yeah. Till I Die. So they they and these were genuine. Having spoken to people there, these were genuine things that they were aware of. But but yeah, the the idea of someone like a like a sort of Sancho and, and, and the problem with Madja ultimately in terms of achieving the Sancho effect was he chose to uh, play for Nigeria, which actually is also a really interesting market um, for, we find Nigeria is our fourth biggest market. There's a real growing interest in, in kind of French football in general from there. Um, but ultimately, you know, if had Josh Madja had an opportunity to be part of Gareth Southgate setup, as you say, it's all about constructing these kind of sub narratives within the right, the wider um, goals of, of of both the club and the league. Are you concerned, though, Bob, that all of these measures are going to be much harder to try and implement? You know, with the de- potential departure of, of of Neymar or Mbappe or both. Well, it's not going to make it easier, is it? I mean, the resources of PSG are significant. You know, it, it does everything well. Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know from its from its kit, its Michael Jordan tie-in. I yeah. think it should be able to attract very interesting players going forward. I think one of the questions that sort of was posed to me before this was, you know, what do we do better than than PSG? I think the only thing I could come up with at the moment down in Nice is probably the weather. You know. <laughs> <laughs> But, but then I did think, you know, that in itself is sort of quite interesting because we do, within Ineos, we do talk to ourselves and sort of say, why wouldn't you want to go to Nice as a young player? You know, you've got a great coach, great stadium, and what a place to live, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, well, you know, there is a big plus about warm weather football. And I think as part of sort of building Ineos football, around this hub of Nice, one of the things is it's a great place to be. It's a fantastic place to come and play your football. 
Yeah, and, and ultimately there are questions to be asked about the, the last half decade of why, I mean, AS Monaco obviously had certainly more financial resources, but even in the players of the kind of transfer fee bracket that Ojo Nice could have competed with, some, especially some of the young players, Nice just, you know, just wasn't there at the end of the, end, at the sort of table, um, convincing or trying to convince some of these young players to the same extent that, that AS Monaco had succeeded to create something that, that went into 2017. I mean, people always think that the AS Monaco story is one of, uh, you know, they, they, they succeeded in the Champions League because of, you know, initial huge expenditure. But actually, pretty much everybody, apart from Falcao and Ricardo Carvalho in that first batch of signings in, in 2013 was an unmitigated disaster. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Champions League success in 17 and then the subsequent Ligue 1 success came from, from the Thomas Lomas, from the Bernardo Silvers, from the Fabinho. Fabinho was signed for um, something like two million. Um, Lomas... People like Bernardo Silva were quite significant. Sum. Yeah, but Bernardo Silva was on the top end. It was eight, 18 million euros yeah. at the time. And, yeah. and that's, you know, Ojecini's previously, ha previously hasn't been able to play in that realm. It's been yeah. far more than 10 to 15 um, bracket, but that's that's certainly you're right. I mean, that's certainly the. I guess I was sort of <laughs> laughing about the weather comment, but you know, you have everything you need there to create a, a sort of situation of just you know pure enjoyment. <laughs> almost you know, almost too many distractions down there potentially. Uh, yeah, you know, I think to be honest as well, to think you know, I, I don't know how much it matters to a young footballer. Hopefully, it does. But hey. You know, you can you can bump into the gym. You know, Chris Froome, Garant Thomas. You know, there is this mix with other athletes that could be quite interesting. And you know, even housing some of the young players together from diverse sports. You know, there's there's a lot that we've not even started on yet, which I think could be quite fruitful in terms of sort of in your sport and the benefits to the individual teams. Yeah. Um, just three more, Bob. I really appreciate your time. Um, we okay. will do this at the end of uh, the end of each of these podcasts. One piece of advice that you would sort of give young people who want to get involved in the sort of business side of football rather than the playing side. Um, just you know, if there's even it, well, it can be anything. It can be you know, a couple of things that you need to have in order to achieve that. Um, a quote that stood out to you from someone. Anything. And for me, one of the interesting, really positive things about getting immersed in football is, as distinct from spending a life in financial services, is people went into financial services effectively to get paid. People go into football because it's their passion, it's what they love. Mm. And, you know, life fulfilled, if you, if you can actually get reasonably compensated and do something you love, I think there's a real benefit to that. What I would say is, you know, you see the premierships, we talked about Mbappé, Neymar. Football is not necessarily the most profitable business activity, okay? So don't, you know, you need a perspective on it. And at the same time, I think if you're going to be productive, and it's a, it's a great business that is growing, that wasn't there when I was a kid, the, you know, it was semi-amateur at all sporting levels when I was sort of mm. in, my, in my 20s, is it's actually quite useful to have a foundational skill to work within football. So, you know, 
become an accountant and work in football, become a lawyer and work in football, you know, become really good at IT and work in football, become a data scientist and work in football. I think you cannot ignore to get that foundational skill if you want to be successful within sport or football in particular. That makes sense? I think it does. And I think that that will be very much appreciated by the uh, loyal listeners uh, checking in. Final word for the Ojisinese fans. What would be your message to them ahead of, I guess, what is the club's first proper transfer window? Although I guess we need to asterisk that statement with COVID-19 and not even knowing when when the summer transfer window is opening. Uh, But a sort of final word for them, uh, the the Ojisinese fans going into this summer. I think what, what what concerns me is you know these sort of you know these these groups that break out and have that great first album and then their second album isn't you know great expectations isn't as good and we had that I do think we had a very good first window in difficult circumstances I think just to don't get carried away with expectations particularly in a world that is so changed with with COVID. And I'd ask for forbearance and patience and sort of enjoy the journey and the project because that's, that's what we're doing. We're doing this because we like, we like sport, we like football, we want to have some fun. And we want to have some fun on the journey. It's all part of it. Mm. And a final word on Patrick Vieira, someone who has faced some criticism since he you know, arrived in the sense that fans are frustrated that maybe the style of football that they've seen under him has not compared favorably to Lucien Favre or even Kroetkewell before. Is he the man, absolutely the man, and, uh, you know, fully, fully backing him going into 2020, 2021? Yeah, yeah, we, we, think, uh, we think Patrick is, is great. One of the reasons he was brought on board was, and, and you know, they sort of judiciously scouted him, Julian and Jean-Pierre, was how he developed players, how he worked with players in New York City, and we see the benefit of that. I think criticism of Patrick is, a, is, is sort of unfair. He did very well that first season with, with really nobody to score goals for him. And, you know, the league placing was, was admirable. Mm. I think we'll take responsibility for, you know, the disturbance that we caused as well, which wasn't wasn't easy. I think at the beginning of this season, you know, we went from he went from no upfront resources to more upfront resources. But you know, it takes time to bed that in. And again, you you know, we're patient people. We see the benefit of working with people. We started to see a team that was beginning to click just before it all stops. So yeah, we're very positive about uh, Patrick and he, like Jean-Pierre, like Julian, is a very significant part of our project. We've talked about an Ineos style of player. Is there an Ineos style of play or not? I do think that's important. I think, you know, if, 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 if you look at football in the Premiership and what you enjoy watching, you know, I'm. I'd still be. I'd still rather watch Manchester City than Liverpool, and I don't say that just because I come from Manchester. And you know, but but I do. I think attractive football, attacking football, and you know, you come back to the characteristics of an Ineos player: people who can sort of work hard for the team, track back, those sort of characteristics. It it it's 
it's tough, Christian, to really say this is this is. But but I I do think it's important to put on attractive football where you see something special. And I think we've got the nucleus of a core of players, which hopefully we can add to, who can put that on display for the fans and the league more broadly. So next season, if you prefer to watch Ujusinis over Manchester City, <laughs> if everything goes well. Um, thank you, uh, Bob, for your time. That concludes today's uh, episode of the President's Podcast. The final word from me is to make sure you continue to follow all the latest health advice from your local governments and from your wider governments as we all navigate this really quite difficult time. Stay safe out there. Make sure to continue to refresh these podcast feeds for more content just like this. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye.